Let's get ready to study God's Word. Greetings to one and all. Welcome to another episode of Rightly Divide the Word of Truth. This is Andrew S. Baker, and it's time for another devotional study. Please be sure to visit us at biblestudy.asbzone.com, where you can find links to our previous episodes and various Bible study resources. Let's have a word of prayer before we get into our study for today. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you, Lord, for the blessings of a new day. We want to thank you for an opportunity to study your word. We invite your presence to be with us. We ask you to give us wisdom and understanding. Thank you for the technology that allows us to do this, and we ask that you'll be with that technology as we present. In Jesus' name, amen. Today's study is entitled, For Our Benefit, Not His. And our verse for today is found in Exodus 3, verses 7 and 8. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows, and I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Exodus 3, 7 and 8. For our benefit, not his. This passage shows us that God is a personal God that God is interested in our condition, in our feelings, in in our situation. And it represents God as coming near, especially when he needs to check on something. The Bible also teaches us elsewhere that God is not just all-powerful, but all-knowing. And one of the problems, one of the difficulties that we have, and we've spoken about this on this channel and actually on True Wisdom as well, many times in our quest to try and understand the Scripture and understand God, we pit some of God's attributes against other of God's attributes. We try to rationalize a specific attribute and then conclude things about God in general, ignoring what he has said outright. Okay? We take deduction too far. And what do I mean when I say we take deduction too far? Well, it's one thing if God wrote about himself and only gave us one of his attributes. If he described just his knowledge and identified it as being all-powerful, all-knowing. 
and we had no other information about him, then it would make some sense if we extrapolated that that knowledge meant X and Y and Z, right? So, for instance, there are people who believe that God doesn't need to do any investigation because the Bible shows that he knows all things. And that would be fine if we had a vacuum of information, if we did not have additional information which tells us that God does check things. So the correct way to handle that is not to say, well, I know this about attribute A, and therefore all these other things must be true, regardless of what I see in the scripture about anything else. Or we have to say, attribute A is true, but there are there's additional commentary about the behavior of God, which I also have to accept as truth. Right? Otherwise, I'm going to say that the Bible is some truth, some error. But if I'm not going to conclude that, then I have to accept that everything that God presents about himself in the word of God is true. And if those two truths seem to collide, if they seem to have a conflict, then we need to harmonize the conflict, but we cannot harmonize it by considering one of the truths to be error. Okay? So the Bible teaches us that God knows all things. It shows him knowing things beforehand. He says it explicitly that he knows all things, that his knowledge is without finding out, his knowledge is, is without end, that he knows the end from the beginning, etc. And then it tells us here that he saw the affliction of his people in Egypt, that he heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, that he knows their sorrows, and that he's come down to deliver them. This is a conversation that God is having with Moses at the burning bush. Why do we have that language then? If God knows all things and knows the end from the beginning, why does he represent to Moses that he is seeing and hearing things in real time in order to act on them? Right? He doesn't mention about him knowing their sorrows until the other two things. And in fact, in the context of the sentence that he's presenting to Moses, you'd be less inclined to think that this is foreknowledge as opposed to this is just observation. I see them in their affliction. I hear them crying about their affliction. Therefore, I know their sorrows. It would seem that that is more connected to his present sentence than to any foreknowledge which you might learn about or understand from him elsewhere. Let's move from Exodus before we answer that, because this question is going to be answered as part of our complete understanding for today. Let's go to Genesis 11. Genesis 11. Remember, we are not arguing here that God does not know everything. What we're arguing is that God comes close to humanity for reasons other than his foreknowledge. And that he's doing it not for his benefit, but for ours. In Genesis 11, we have the story of the Tower of Babel. Reading from verse 1. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. Okay, so this is the time period in earth where... There are no separate dialects. Everyone speaks one way. No matter who speaks, 
someone else on that planet can understand it. In fact, I said that incorrectly. No matter who speaks, everyone else on the planet can understand it. One speech, one language. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Okay, now, if you study this part of the passage more, if you come from the flood story, you'll know that God told them to spread apart on the earth and repopulate it. Okay? They here are alluding to the fact that they don't want to do any such thing. They want to congregate. Moreover, they're concerned that something may happen again. They don't trust God's word. And they intend to build a city with a tower in it for protection. Verse 5 says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. Okay. Now, if we were to take this verse by itself, no other thoughts about what the Bible teaches anywhere else, it would be easy to conclude that at best the Lord had heard a rumor about the Tower of Babel, or he had noticed some activity in his peripheral vision, and he came over to check out what was going on. That's what you'd conclude just by isolating this verse. But the Bible teaches us elsewhere that God is eternal and has foreknowledge that is eternal, like he's always had it. God didn't suddenly become a certain way. He didn't graduate to a particular level after a period of time. And even if you were to conclude that he graduated, that he came from some state that was not perfect knowledge to a later state that was perfect knowledge, all of that happened before the creation of the world, right? The Bible does not in any way give you any reason to conclude that after man is on the scene, God has gotten wiser or obtained more knowledge or anything of the sort, okay? So no matter what you think about the eternal past, the fact is that within the duration of man's lifespan in the universe, God has known all things, okay? I shouldn't say within, prior to, right? Mankind's existence occurs entirely within the realm of when God knows all things, no matter what you think of previous, of the time prior to that. So why is God coming down? Why is he presenting himself? He's reporting this. Moses is the one recording this. The same Moses that records our verse in Exodus. Why is it that God is reporting himself as coming to check? Whose benefit is it that he comes and checks? It's not his. There's a whole universe watching the great controversy. And God sometimes has to show up in the right place in order for something to occur. Think about it this way, right? Think about it this way, to use a rough analogy. If you're watching a television show or movie, any type of presentation of that sort, the characters in that show have their own existence, right? They know things and 
and the way, and the way the director of the of the movie, the show, the presentation is running it is designed for the audience to know things. Right? It's designed for the audience to know things. Who the cameraman focuses on and who the scene presents is for the audience to know. It's for the audience to learn. The director knows what's going to happen because he's directing it. He's seen the script, as it were. He has all knowledge about what's going to happen in this. Individual participants have whatever knowledge they, they have in, in, in their little presentation. But the fact is, the audience is the one that does not know how things will unfold and is being shown where to look, what to look at, what to see, so that they can understand. In Genesis 18, okay, Genesis 11, Tower of Babel, in Genesis 18, the Lord comes on a mission to visit Sodom and Gomorrah. And for whatever reason, he chooses to take a path. He doesn't just teleport himself straight to Sodom and Gomorrah. We don't know where else he was on the planet, but he shows up near Abraham's place on his way to Sodom and Gomorrah. And so we get to see Abraham's hospitality. We get to hear the promise to Abraham. He makes a promise to Abraham about Abraham and Sarah having a child a year from now. In fact, less than a year. Um, we get to hear his... Um, we get to hear his plans about what is going on. And here's how he represents himself. So he's the Lord after they've eaten, Abraham is escorting them on their way. So he's going to walk with them some percentage of the way off, you know, to the edge of his property, as it were, and help them on their way. And while they're going the last second, the Lord says, ostensibly to the two angels that are with him, that are described as men in this passage. The Lord says to him in, in Genesis eighteen seventeen, and the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. Okay, so that's the conversation he has, basically saying, eh, I'm not just going to leave here and not let Abraham understand all that was going on here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share it with him because the Bible tells us in Amos that the Lord will do nothing except he reveal it to his servants, the prophets, right? And Abraham has already been identified as a prophet. Verse 20. And the Lord said, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which has come unto me. And if not, I will know. God presents himself as hearing some information about a situation on earth. And he's coming to check. And if you just take everything we know, everything that the scripture teaches about God 
his own personal knowledge, the fact that angels are messengers back and forth. If you take everything that we know, God either should know about the situation of Sodom and Gomorrah directly and understand it fully, or perhaps he's busy and not thinking about all those things, but the angels are going back and forth and reporting things to him. So the angels have communicated to him what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. Does he not believe the angelic report? Does he not trust the angels? Why does he have to come and check after he got information? Right? These are the kinds of conclusions you come to when you attempt to use only deduction to understand God and his dealings with man. But not only does God know everything, not only is does he have messengers and others who are sent to help those on earth. But God shows us repeatedly that his interactions with man are at a personal level. And God sets the example for us that no matter how you obtain knowledge of something, when it is time to act on it, you must check it out first. You must make some sort of assessment. But the assessment in this case is not for God's benefit. Think about this as a parent. Think about when you become aware that your child has done something that you've told the child not to do before. It's a particularly uh, bad thing that they've done. Don't we consider it good parenting to either go to where the child is or summon the child before us and ask questions to ascertain the matter? Most of the time as a parent, especially when your child is young, you're not asking those questions to learn information. You're asking those questions to see if the child is going to do the right thing, if they're going to lie to you or tell you the truth, if they're going, if they perhaps have a mitigating circumstance that wasn't exposed, right? Some of it that we do as human parents will involve potential gaps in our knowledge, right? But not all of it. And in God's case, it's not about potential gaps in his knowledge. God is running a transparent government. And as such, there are other people looking at it. And God wants to reveal his motivations for the things that he does. Right? It's his prerogative as sovereign of the universe to just do things. But he has decided that he wants a transparent and open government. And so he's consistent with that desire, that goal. And that requires doing things in a way that other people can see and understand and appreciate. God interacts with humanity the way that he does for our benefit and for the benefit of all of the other created beings in his universe, not for his own benefit, at least not for his direct benefit, right? You could argue that in so doing, we... His, his citizens, he both human and, and uh, heavenly, all of the beings of his, of his kingdom will have a better appreciation for him and that will lead to better outcomes in his kingdom, right? So you could argue that at the far end of this, he does benefit, but he does not 
there's no immediate benefit to him coming to check things that he knows and knew in advance of them happening. The Bible does teach us that, that he knows all things. But it also clearly teaches us from these three passages that we looked at that he comes to check on things. And therefore, if he's not gaining, if it's not for knowledge reasons why he does the second thing, then it has to be example. It has to be associated with other principles. So when we're wrestling with things of this sort, we cannot discard one fact because of another fact. We have to accept all of the facts that are presented and then harmonize them with other facts, right? The reason why all of this other activity is going on is because of the love of God. That's an attribute of God. The knowledge of God does not cancel the love of God. The love of God does not cancel the knowledge of God or the justice of God. None of those attributes cancel other attributes. They work harmoniously together for the good of the universe, the good of God's citizens. Actually, the good of every creature in the universe, but ultimately some creatures are going to take choices that put them on the wrong end of the justice of God. So at the end of the day, the creatures that will benefit the most are those who align themselves with the kingdom of God. Exodus 3, 7 and 8 says, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows, and I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the things you reveal to us about yourself in your word. We thank you for the manner in which you operate. We thank you for the examples that you provide us, that we always need to investigate things that we're going to act upon. Even if we think we know everything, we still need to do so because there are principles involved in doing so. We ask you to help us to trust you and that when we see things in your word, that we will rightly understand them and that we will not be prone to try to put our reasoning above revelation. Bless us, Lord. Bless all those that hear us and help us to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to this podcast. You can reach us via email at BibleQuestions at ASBZone.com. We look forward to hearing from you, whether you have questions, comments, suggestions, or concerns. We also recommend that you check out the True Wisdom Podcast, where Robert and I discuss Bible stories and topics together. Both of these podcasts can be found on over a dozen platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and more. Please remember our ministries in your prayers. Until we meet again next time, may God richly bless you as you prayerfully study and share His Holy Word. 